0: section twenty five of chapters on evolution by andrew wilson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine the evidence from development one the earlier stages in the life history of animals part three the marshalling of facts to form generalizations and the stringing of these facts upon the thread of a connected history is a duty which lies next to hand in treating of development and the lessons it is calculated to teach let us in the first place try to discover the place and import of harvey's teachings concerning development as compared with those of succeeding investigators and theories there can be no question that the researches of the nineteenth century have but confirmed and enlarged the observations of harvey in the seventeenth Epigenesis is seen to be the method of nature in developing the animal form with that admirable and incomprehensible artifice which Harvey so justly admired. From the primitive and undifferentiated protoplasm of the egg, modern embryology beholds the formation of the chick in a fashion strictly corresponding in all essential details to that outlined by the genius of Harvey. Compared with the views of Malpighi, holding that the egg contained a miniature chick and that development was merely an unfolding or expansion of already formed parts, Harvey's description and theory of development stand forth in marked contrast in respect of their thorough correspondence with the fruits of modern research. Bonnet's theory of the evolution through the supply of nutrition of an already formed chick contained in the egg meets a like fate to the opinion of Malpighi, whilst his doctrine of emboirment crediting each germ with being the repository of all future germs, when taken literally, shares a like fate with his ideas regarding the evolution of a single animal form. As supplementing the ideas of Harvey by direct observation, we note the philosophic nature of the views of Wolfe, through whose researches the foundations of modern embryology may be regarded as having been laid. The line of research leading from Wolfe to Pander to the present day may be held to represent merely the direct continuation of the exercitations of Harvey whose philosophizing has thus led to results of which its sage founder with all his perspicuity could have had no warning or idea the details of the studies in development outlined in this chapter must now be briefly summed up whilst a glance at their bearings upon and teachings regarding evolution may form a fitting conclusion to the present stage of our studies Firstly, then, it is noteworthy that the germ or ovum of all animals, excepting the very lowest, or protozoa, appears as a protoplasmic mass, which exhibits all the characters of the microscopic body known as a cell. In the lowest animals just named, the difficulty of distinguishing their germs, and indeed their entire developmental history, arises in great part from their ill-defined nature, and from the marvelous analogies and likenesses they present, to their lower plant neighbors in the biological no-man's land where the lowest animals and lowest plants meet in a confusing identity of form and function distinctness of germ elements may neither be expected nor found but it is at the same time noteworthy that even in this lowest group of the animal series the observed phenomena of development occasionally present a singular resemblance to the primary process about to be alluded to and already named segmentation. Such resemblance being inexplicable save on the supposition that in these lowest forms, the development of the higher is foreshadowed in dim outline. Take as an example the development of Magosphera, a low form of marine animalcule found living on the Norwegian coast by Heckel. It resembles the familiar animacule known as the amoeba, but during the development of new beings, the megasphera assumes a spherical form within which a nucleus and a nucleolus give it the appearance of a veritable egg next in order succeeds a process remarkably like that known as segmentation in the eggs of higher animals in the course of this process the megasphera divides until a stage resembling the mulberry stage or marula is attained thereafter the outer surface becomes ciliated and liberated from its investment The magosfera swims freely in the sea. Soon this free-swimming sphere breaks up into detached fragments of protoplasm, at first ciliated, but finally assuming the adult magosfera form. In the well-defined groups of the animal world, ranging from the zoophytes, corals, and their neighbors, salentorate animals, up to the vertebrates, including man himself, we are presented with a marvelous likeness and an undoubted correspondence in the form and nature of the germ and of the processes in virtue of which that germ is started on its developmental journey next in order we note the occurrence in the developing eggs of all animals of that process to which the name segmentation has been given we have seen that the germ or egg of the sponge equally with that of the sea squirt lancelet chick and also with that of mammalia or quadrupeds exhibits this process of division the egg at first single-celled becomes in this way many-celled, and the variations observable in the process itself are but insignificant when contrasted with the extraordinary uniformity in the broad outlines thus exhibited by the eggs of all animals in their first stages and in the changes preparatory to the outlining of the future form. But the similarity between the development of widely different animals ends not thus. If the process of segmentation is universal, the morula or mulberry stage in which that process culminates is seen to be no less uniform and unvarying in its occurrence even among the protozoa as we have already remarked we may perceive stages in development which imitate the mulberry mass of higher forms we have already traced the occurrence of this stage in the sponge and in the other life histories described in this chapter whilst a wider survey of the animal world would serve to show that in the early history of every group the mulberry stage is to be witnessed as the first prominent landmark or halting place on the journey of life. The egg of such an animal as a tardigrade or bare animalcule, minute organisms allied to the mites and found in the gutters of housetops, thus exhibits in its development stages of a nature essentially similar to those seen in the history of both lower and higher forms of animal life the egg itself exhibits a structure comparable with that of all other germs in its development the germ not only passes through the stages of segmentation already familiar to us in the sponges sea squirts and vertebrates but also arrives in due course at the mulberry epic or morula whence the special features of the tardigrades are specialized how perfectly these details in the animalcule correspond with the stages in the development of the vertebrates or highest animals is a fact which may be best appreciated by the comparison of the segmentation of the egg of a vertebrate animal from its commencing development to the attainment of the mulberry stage whilst that of the frog exhibits essentially the same phases as the developing germ of bird or mammal with professor Allen thompson we may therefore hold that quote, the occurrence of segmentation and the regularity of its phenomena are so constant That we may regard it as one of the best established series of facts in organic nature. But the further stages in development of different animals run parallel beyond the mulberry stage of progress. The morula, as we have seen, becomes the planula, a stage we saw distinctly in the sponge, and which is repeated with but little variation in the development even of the highest animals. Thus, the planula appears to be well nigh as universal in its occurrence as the morula but we saw that the planula in due course became the bag-shaped structure named gastrula the wall of the planula is pushed in upon itself on one side a central cavity being thus formed bounded by a double wall and communicating with the outer world by the mouth such is the gastrula and in its composition we are able to discern the two primitive layers named as we have seen ectoderm and endoderm or epiblast and hypoblast A third layer, the mesoblast, makes its appearance between these two primary membranes, and from these three layers, as we have already seen, all the structures of the future animal are in due course developed. It seems perfectly certain, then, that if the mulberry stage constitutes a first landmark in the development of the animal kingdom at large, no less does the gastrula stage form a second resting place in the track of life. Since, as Heckel and other embryologists have shown us, The gastrula stage of development, with its primitive mouth, body cavity, or stomach, and double layers, occurs equally in the zoophyte and worm, is as typical of the starfish as of the crustacean, and aids as materially in the formation of the snail as in the development of the vertebrate. After its gastrula stage, each animal form may be said to assume the special features of the group to which it belongs at this point the vertebrate will pass towards its own sub-kingdom and develop in due time the special features of the fish the frog the reptile the bird or the quadruped hence as from a common point whence numerous ways and paths diverge each animal will elaborate or develop its gastrula germ into a frame more or less complicated and into belongings and structures suiting its rank in the great kingdom of animal life From such a standpoint, we may discern more clearly, perhaps, than at any other stage of our researches, the justice of the comparison which symbolizes the animal world and its origin by the figure of a tree, whose divergent branches bear at their extremities the apparently distinct and specialized groups of animals, but whose stem and trunk from which these branches spring no less powerfully represents the common origin and uniform development of its varied parts. That the evolutionist case for the common origin and production by descent of the forms of animal life is strengthened and supported by the facts of development is a statement which can admit of no question in the eyes of those who fairly face the facts, and who logically and without bias or prepossession construe their meaning. On any other supposition than that of the common origin and subsequent specialization of the varied forms of animal life, the fact that a sponge, a sea squirt, and a lancelet passed through essentially similar stages of development, presents itself simply as an inexplicable mystery. Community of development betokens community of origin. Otherwise, the facts of nature must present themselves as absurdities, admitting of no logical construction whatever. Why a vertebrate animal in its earlier history should resemble a sponge or sea squirt is a query simply unanswerable, save on the hypothesis that vertebrate ancestry was at one period transmitted through forms of which the sponges and sea squirts are the existent, and it may be the altered, representatives. The development of an animal thus reasonably stands before us, in the newer interpretation of evolution, as a veritable panorama of its descent. Often, according to Darwin's already quoted remark, the series of pictures may here and there be obscured. The continuity of the shifting views may be interrupted, by the extinction of stages through the influence of external conditions or of unknown causes. But in most cases, the outlines remain clearly and fairly drawn, and afford us a glimpse into the order of nature, not only more astonishing but also more convincing in its teachings than the views obtained of the world of life from any other standpoint. There yet remain for consideration one or two important points suggested by the details of animal development— these latter points bearing as intimately, perhaps, on the argument for evolution as the grand facts of development themselves. First, in order, it behoves us to note the interesting facts concerning the branchial arches and gill clefts of vertebrate animals, already noticed, and the conclusions to which the observation of these facts eventually leads. The branchial or gill clefts were remarked as being developed in the neck or throat of the chick about the third day of incubation. The part subsequently played by certain of these structures in the formation of the jaws was duly noted, the remaining clefts and folds disappearing in due course and leaving no trace of their existence behind. Shortly stated, the history of these gill openings shows us that they are of universal occurrence in the development of the vertebrate group of animals. They appear in the fish and in the bird. They are developed as persistently in man's early history as in the development of the frog or reptile. No more convincing proof of the community of development in this respect could be adduced than the comparison of the early embryos of different vertebrate animals. The gill arches are there seen to be as clearly the natural heritage of man as of the rabbit, calf, and pig, whilst they are as typically represented in the chick and fish. In the fish and in some newt-like animals, the visceral clefts and arches become permanent features of their adult life, and are associated with the gills, or breathing organs. But reptiles, birds, and quadrupeds are lung breathers, and possess gills at no period of their life. Why, then, it may be asked, should they invariably develop in their early life gill arches and gill clefts, which bear no relation to the wants of their adult existence? The gill arches of reptiles, birds, and mammals never develop gills, and even the gills and gill clefts of tadpoles disappear when these animals become adult toads frogs and newts why then it may be repeated does this seemingly irrationality and useless expenditure of creative power in nature exist the true and only answer to such a pertinent query is that the gills and gill arches of higher vertebrates bear reference to a former condition of matters they relate to anterior stages of vertebrate existence when the ancestors of lung-breathing animals were represented by gill-bearing and aquatic forms. Gill arches and gill slits thus appear as a true legacy and inheritance from an aquatic ancestry. In the higher vertebrata, the first gill opening becomes converted into structures and parts connected with the ear. The remaining clefts disappear, whilst the gill arches themselves contribute to form the tongue bone, hyoid bone, and the small bones or vesicles of the internal ear only on the theory of descent with modification can we rationally explain the presence of now useless structures such as the gill arches and gill clefts of lung-breathing vertebrates on this principle we may cease marveling says darwin at the embryo of an air-breathing mammal or bird having branchial slits and arteries running in loops like those of a fish which has to breathe the air dissolved in water by the aid of well-developed branchiae the method of disappearance of the gills and their arches is as reasonably detailed when darwin states that in order to understand the existence of rudimentary organs we have only to suppose that a former progenitor possessed the parts in question in a perfect state and that under changed habits of life they became greatly reduced either from simple disuse or through the natural selection of those individuals which were least encumbered with a superfluous part aided by the other means previously indicated. Another fact of interest derived from our studies and development relates to the position of the sea squirt larva and of the lancelet as together constituting links which bridge the gulf between the invertebrates and their higher backbone neighbors, the vertebrate animals. Only when we think of the apparently great gulf fixed between the fishes as the lowest vertebrates and all invertebrate forms Can we realize the gain to evolution of the knowledge which shows how the development of the sea squirt and that of the lowest vertebrate run in parallel lines? Such a correspondence in development and the discovery of the possession by sea squirts of the notochord, long thought to be the exclusive possession of the vertebrates, constitute together a veritable tower of strength for the evolutionist, whence he may survey a formidable gap supplied and a missing link satisfactorily brought to light. It should lastly be noted that the facts brought to light by a study of the early stages in the development of animals may be regarded as being thoroughly in favor of the theory of evolution. Professor Alan Thompson, in his presidential address to the British Association, 1877, stated the latter fact forcibly when he said, I consider it impossible, therefore, for anyone to be a faithful student of embryology in the present state of science without at the same time becoming an evolutionist. These are weighty words, but they are fully justified by the circumstances of the case to which they apply. And no less apt are the terms in which the same authority in matters embryological further alludes to the support received by evolution from daily life histories of living beings. If, says Professor Thompson, we admit the progressive nature of the changes of development, their similarity in different groups, and their common characters in all animals, Nay, even in some respects, in both plants and animals, we can scarcely refuse to recognize the possibility of continuous derivation in the history of their origin. End of section 25. Chapter 9. The Evidence from Development. 1. The Earlier Stages in the Life History of Animals. Part 3.